0: From Wyoming to South Carolina, West Virginia to Missouri, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, has social media become the nation's public square, and if so, do users have confidence in the platforms? Taylor Barkley from the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University is here with poll results. Congressional Republicans are getting set to unveil their commitment to America, Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. The devil is in the details. That is especially true when it comes to student loan forgiveness. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine takes a closer look with Emily Eakins from the Cato Institute. And the last leader of the Soviet Union, a Cold War icon, has passed away. Dr. Paul Kangor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College remembers Mikhail Gorbachev, on this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Social media has become an integral part of most people's lives and, in many ways, has become an electronic public square. But not everyone participates. Taylor Barclay is Technology and Innovation Director at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. He has results of a recent poll on issues surrounding social media. Taylor, welcome to American Radio Journal. Taylor, as we get into specific public attitudes here regarding social media and tech today, let's first talk a little bit about the world of social media. It's often been referred to as the public square. It's a place where folks can go to debate and discuss issues and ideas. Are people really utilizing social media platforms as a public square these days?
1: That's a great question, Loman. And our poll had really surprising data for us. This is something that really jumped out as we were reviewing the latest uh, numbers in our poll. So most people answered that social media is where important policy conversations take place. 61% of Americans agreed that this is social media is where the primary channel by which important public policy conversations are taking place. But only 24% said that they primarily use social media to share their political beliefs with others. And 68% of Americans say they avoid political conversations online. So there's this interesting kind of split amongst Americans, where there's maybe this popular relief, apparently, and you know, their survey indicates that, you know, hey, it's uh, maybe a, a public square, but only a quarter of Americans are actively participating with most Americans avoiding it. So this is why my colleagues, uh, Chris Kootman and Will Reinhardt, in a Newsweek op-ed last week called Social Media is More the Coliseum than the Public Square. It's, it's a place where Americans go to spectate and view maybe their political gladiators discussing ideas, and as they watch these debates and discussions happen, rather than everyone participating at once in this public square notion.
0: In many ways, that does, of course, mirror elections, etc. at large, does it not? We oftentimes see, uh, except in presidential yeah. elections, you're lucky to get 25-30% of the electorate to actually participate in an election. So as we have people, that small portion of the electorate discussing, debating politics on social media platforms. What are prevailing views then from this poll, Taylor, as to how people view the role of the platforms themselves? And we hear a lot of controversy Mm -hmm. over fact-checkers. Does the public view the platforms as responsible for ensuring the accuracy of posts and discussions?
1: There are multiple surprising things. So this is, you know, probably like top two surprising things for me. So Americans, on this this question, I want to unpack it a little bit here. So we asked Americans' belief on free speech. 86% of Americans say free speech is very important. And then we asked a number of questions about are social media companies justified in removing disruptive users and disrupted elected officials? And majority of Americans agree that social media companies are justified in those removals. And then we asked about, you know, should social media companies be held responsible for content, the disruptive content, misinformation, uh, that they host? And most Americans agreed with that notion. And then we had the, the, the final kind of piece here. We asked if news companies and media companies should be fined for bias. Uh, reporting and most Americans agreed with that. So it it was, you know, that is in stark tension with the notion of free speech. Of course, news media companies are being refined for biased information. That's, that's probably (laughs) most media companies would, would, uh, fall under scrutiny, which would have tremendous free speech implications. But so for the, it's kind of overall, there's this mixed bag and uh, it seems based on our polling data and you know, I invite your listeners to check out the full scope of the data on our website. It's all accessible. When it comes down to these granular decisions, Americans seem to take the side of giving social media companies discretion on on notions of uh, misinformation and disruptive users, saying they should be allowed to take those down. We also see a partisan split there with more Democrats agreeing that social media companies should be held responsible than Republicans, for instance. We have those partisan breakdowns as well.
0: Let's talk for a minute or two here, Taylor, about trust. And distrust. A lot of conservatives in particular seem to have issues with big tech and social media. What did the poll find about public attitudes when it comes to trusting these platforms?
1: This was a line of questioning we've had on our poll since 2020. We've uh, deployed four polls since 2020. And we asked about trust and distrust for all the major uh, big tech companies and you know, Zoom is included there. I wouldn't count them as big tech. You also ask about the government as well. Do Americans trust the federal, state, and local government uh, with their data? And so uh, across the board, tech companies have remained fairly flat on trust and distrust. So you know, Google, for instance, was 32% of Americans trusted them in July of 2020, and 33% trusted them in our latest poll. Trust is lower for social media companies and companies like Google or Amazon. Amazon is the highest in our poll of trust, uh, whereas Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter are you know 17, 10, and 12 respectively at trust levels. So fairly low. And the big changes we saw over time were with Zoom. Uh, trust greatly increases Zoom by nine percentage points since 2020. And then the trust in government, levels of government went down over time. So, you know, in other words, distrust went up with, with uh, federal, state, and local governments since 2020.
0: One of the big controversies, big news stories over the last few months has been Elon Musk's attempt to purchase Twitter. Appears to be somewhat on the rocks at the moment, but that sort of, <laughs> that sort of ebbs and flows back and forth. It depending does, <laughs> it does. What did the poll show about whether or not folks thought that having Elon Musk own Twitter was a good idea?
1: We asked this question, we added this question on this latest deployment of the poll, which took place in uh, late June, early July. So we asked, from completely disagree to completely agree, is Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter good for the future of social media? With about 41% of respondents agreeing that it was would be good for the future of social media, and about 31% of uh, respondents disagreeing and 27% of Americans not sure. So that's kind of a roughly a third, third, third of Americans split on whether it's good or bad and with tiny bit of majority agreeing that it's good for the future of social media.
0: The Center for Growth and Opportunity has been, as you've mentioned, conducting this tech poll a number of times here. Just as we conclude here, Taylor, any sort of trends that you have picked up looking at the past polls, the most recent poll of a month or so ago, any sort of trend that really jumps out at you when it comes to social media?
1: Levels of trust and distrust, despite all the news since 2020, you know, summer of 2020, it's remained relatively flat. I think, maybe bucks against the notion that all the negative press and the tech lash is having a, a major impact. And, you know, maybe if our poll went back to, say, 2014, we'd see a big change. And Pew has some of that data. But, you know, for us, it's the last couple of years, a lot has happened. There's been a lot of discussion, like the Wall Street Journal articles about the, the Facebook files. I think, you know, trust and distrust have remained relatively flat. And where we've seen the, the biggest changes have been in trust in government and It depends on who's in the White House. We saw a big flip in Republicans and Democrats' levels of trust in the federal government based on who was in the White House. So when, you know, in 2020, summer 2020, it was way distrust is very high amongst Democrats. And now that uh, President Biden's in office, uh, distrust is much lower for Democrats and vice versa for Republicans.
0: We have been talking with Taylor Barkley, who is the technology and innovation director at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State. Taylor, tell us a little bit about the Center for Growth and Opportunity. And where can folks go to read the actual results of the poll that we have been discussing?
1: You can find it all at the CGO.org and click on Technology Innovation, and all the data is in Excel files for you to comb through. And we are a university-based research center at Utah State University in Logan, Utah, aiming to connect cutting-edge academic research with relevant public policy problems. And that's what we aim to do in technology innovation and energy and environment and in immigration issues.
0: Once again, Taylor Barkley from the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State. Taylor, thank you for taking time to be here.
1: Thanks so much, Loman.
0: Scott Parkinson is at the Club for Growth, and this week we're going to talk about messaging and how Republicans who are preparing for what may be a red wave coming up here in a few weeks, how Republicans plan to message toward that and talk a bit about what they will do should they regain power. Scott, good to have you here.
2: Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me.
0: Kevin McCarthy is going to travel to the Keystone State, to Pittsburgh, to unveil this. What is it called? And tell us a bit about the strategy behind it.
2: You mentioned Red Wave. Maybe it's going to be a red r- ripple. We're not exactly sure how deep the electoral gains for House Republicans are going to be. But we do know that the House Democrats only have a five-seat majority right now. And so Kevin McCarthy and his members in the Republican conference have put together sort of an agenda that they're calling the commitment to America. And everybody remembers from 1994 when Newt Gingrich and the Gingrich Revolution unveiled the contract with America, and we had really historic electoral gains for the House of Representatives to fight back against Bill Clinton and his presidency. Well, right now we know what we've been dealing with here for really almost two years with the Biden administration. And it's weakened our economy. It's decreased uh, safety in communities. Basically, Democrats are advancing socialism and, and stifling freedom, not just economic freedom, but our personal freedoms. And the government has been unaccountable. So what Kevin McCarthy is putting together has been reported by Breitbart News. And again, this is going to be unveiled in Pittsburgh next week on September 19th. But it's going to have four main pillars. And the first pillar is going to be about building out a strong economy. And the second pillar is going to be uh, building out a nation that's safe. And then the third third one is going to be a future that's free. And the fourth one is going to be a government that's accountable. And there are different policy items that that fit underneath each of these pillars. But when you think about an economy right now that the American people are, are certainly feeling, we have that pinch of historic inflation. And so, what I expect the House Republicans to do is, is try to really reverse course on a lot of the things that Joe Biden has advanced. And that includes repealing and ending the Build Back Better agenda. Obviously, Joe Biden has sort of masked over what the Build Back Better plan was. They failed to advance most of it last fall, but then earlier this summer, they did go go forward with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that was really just so much of the Green New Deal and the Build Back Better plan all papered over with new messaging to end inflation. But we know what inflation is doing right now to the American people and prices and costs all across the board. So then when you think about a nation that's safe, obviously border security, the level of fentanyl that's being confiscated by our law enforcement community against drug dealers, and the threats that we face as a nation, I think that you're going to see those House Republicans begin to address with specific policies what to do there. And I think that they're going to look at the remaining Mexico policy that was reversed by the Biden administration, and they're going to hold these sanctuary cities accountable that really aren't doing anything against the drug cartels and the drug dealers that are advancing dangerous drugs in our communities. With a future that's free, I think that everybody feels their personal freedoms and individual liberties were certainly trampled during the COVID pandemic. And earlier this week, we had Barack Obama and Michelle Obama's official portraits at the White House being unveiled. I looked closely at a picture, and I think out of about 100 people in the crowd, maybe three were wearing masks. And, you know, it really is kind of time to say that the COVID pandemic is completely over. If somebody has, obviously, uh, terrible health condition and they want to wear a mask, they're fine to do it. But there's no mask mandate anymore on airplanes. And what we need to do is basically restore our individual liberties and rights. And what I think this plan is going to do is, is look at education and have that be a key pillar. I'd expect the House Republicans to include this parental bill of rights, which is a good start, but isn't concrete legislation to advance school choice. So you're going to see groups like the Club for Growth continue to try to push those House Republicans to offer more specific details and opportunities to American families to advance our individual freedoms and liberties, including in the school freedom area.
0: All of this, Scott, is this uh, an effort not only to provide a policy roadmap for what Republicans in the House, the agenda they will push should they take over here after the first of the year, but is this an effort to knock away all the distractions that have been taking place, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. You have the political move of so-called student loan forgiveness. Is this an effort to refocus on the issues that Americans are really concerned about?
2: Well, listen, Loman, that's a good question. What I would say is the House Republicans have been working for over a year on putting together an agenda. They've taken constructive criticism from groups like the Club for Growth. They've also uh, had a lot of member buy-in with, with folks participating, and this isn't just Kevin McCarthy writing things out on a notepad and then, you know, publishing it. I think that they've had hundreds of hours of meetings related to building back House majority, and when you think about the timing with the contract with America, uh, Club for Growth President David McIntosh was actually a part of that historic class. They didn't un- unveil... The contract with America until about August of 1994, so just a few months before the election. I think that there were some things that slowed down Kevin McCarthy being able to, to reveal this plan, but it was always something that the, the House Republicans planned to do.
0: We will then look forward to hearing the details when Kevin McCarthy reveals the commitment to America next week. We'll talk about this and other subjects going forward with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club.
2: Well, everybody out there listening today, I've encouraged you to visit us on our website, clubforgrowth.org. You can actually sign up to become a member for free. So check us out, clubforgrowth.org.
0: Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, look forward to talking with you next week. Okay, thank you. Student loan forgiveness is a hot topic. On the surface, it enjoys strong support, but not so much when folks dive into the details. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine and Emily Eakins from the Cato Institute take the plunge.
3: Most Americans seem to support Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness program, or at least they do, until they have to think about how it works. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Boehm with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Emily Eakins. She is the vice president and director of polling at the Cato Institute. And I think it's our first time here on the program, so we're glad to welcome her. She recently conducted and and published for Cato, I think, a really fascinating poll into some of the political dynamics involving this uh, student loan forgiveness scheme that the White House has cooked up. Emily, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to be here today.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: As I said, I think this is a really fascinating poll. People can check out the specifics at Cato.org, but the the top line sort of thing here is that your polling shows that the student debt forgiveness program is is pretty popular and then there's like a huge caveat here.
4: Yes. <laughs> there is. Republicans are opposed from the get go, but what really struck us about this poll is that We followed up on that top line question about if they, if people favor or oppose forgiving student loans, we followed up by asking them about some trade-offs. What if this meant that forgiving $10,000 per borrower raised your taxes? Well, we find that support flips and two-thirds of Americans oppose student debt cancellation. Uh, We asked another follow-up question to another group of respondents in our survey. We we asked, what if forgiving $10,000 per borrower encouraged colleges to increase their tuition and fees? Again, support flips, it reverses, and 76% of Americans are opposed. And so we see that across a, a number of different trade-offs that we asked about, you know, what if it primarily helped the wealthy or what if it re- encouraged employers to inc- uh, require college degrees even if not needed to do the job. That's something called credential inflation and it's already happening, but what if that sped it up? You also get people opposed to student debt cancellation, a, a majority opposed. Now, that the question is, is Will these things actually happen? And and experts who, who research this topic have documented that all of these things are associated with federal lending already, which means that if we were to cancel student debt, this would just speed it up. It would expedite. Um, trends that are already happening. It would cause universities to charge higher fees. It would cause employers to start requiring a college graduate, college degree for a job that doesn't need it. And these are things that Americans find unacceptable.
3: Just to go over a couple of the numbers here, because again, I think they're striking. Uh, and you, you went over the numbers for the general population when you break that down into, into Democrats specifically, right? 88% of Democrats in your poll, self-identified Democrats, say that they support the student debt cancellation program. That The number drops to 44%. It primarily benefits higher income people, which of course it does. Uh, that number drops even further to just 33% if the result is that colleges would increase their tuition and fees. Let's talk about that. That one in particular because that drop off is just so striking tell us why student debt forgiveness might cause colleges and and i mean i think actually it automatically will cause colleges to increase their tuition well first look at
4: what the data says what academic research that has studied this question has found Um, When the federal government provides students with more money to pay for college, it's a noble goal. We understand the purpose behind that. That's to try to help more students attain the skills that they they want and that they need to, to compete in the workplace. But what happens, what researchers have found is that universities realize that students can pay more and so then they start to charge more. That's sticker price of college has already gone up about 30% in the past, the past 10 years. That's that's way above inflation, right? That's not that's not normal. Um, right now the number of administrators at colleges are almost double that of faculty and staff and they are, you know, that gap is increasing is increasing. And I think a lot of people raise reasonable questions about if all of the administration is necessary to deliver the college college experience and the educational experience that students need when the sticker price is just going up and up and up. And so what we would expect is given that that's already happening is that if the government cancels this, this debt here, students are going to expect that it will happen again. And universities might start to think that students might be able to shoulder a little bit more and a little bit more. And and, and as you can see, tuition and fees just start inching upward as people expect that they will be able to afford to take out more loans with the hopes that they won't have to pay it all back.
3: We're talking with Emily Eakins. She is uh, Emily Eakins. She is the vice president and director of polling at the Cato Institute and uh, talking about this new poll that Cato has released looking at the popularity of Joe Biden's student debt forgiveness program. Emily, not a lot of time left, and this is a big question I'm going to dump on you here right at the end, but there's just a difficulty here in understanding uh, the, what seemed like kind of obvious trade-offs here, right? That The Affordable Care Act didn't necessarily make health care more affordable. Is it possible that student debt forgiveness will end up with students in more debt?
4: It could. I mean, it will certainly certainly make, most likely make the sticker price of college go up, which I think it's not just about how much debt the students will take on, but how many students will be scared away from even attending college in the first place. I was talking to a young woman just the other day, and this is exactly what happened to her. She was about to start at UC Santa Cruz, she thought she had some grants lined up, and then when it was when all was said and done, some some grants fell through, and she saw that sticker price, and she said, "I can't afford this," and she walked away, and now she's working um, at like a general store in in town. And the thing is, is that how many people like her are going to walk away that would otherwise be a great fit for college, want to go to college, and they think it's just too expensive? And that's probably what's going to happen. The more government tries to make it more affordable, it actually will make it more expensive.
3: Yeah, and of course, the Student Debt Forgiveness Program, Student Debt Forgiveness Initiative here is not talked about in that way. We only talk about the positive sides of it, not the trade-offs that, uh, you know, once you make people aware of them, obviously their opinion changes on this. Some fascinating stuff from your research, Emily, and from your polling here. Thanks so much for talking to us today.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: And again, that is Emily Eakins. She is a vice president and director of polling at the Cato Institute. You can check out their fine work, including all the details of this uh, fascinating poll at Cato.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal.
0: Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union and a one-time giant on the world stage, has died. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College looks at his legacy on this American Radio Journal Commentary.
5: When I heard about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, I sighed. He was one of the final remaining pivotal figures in the end of the Cold War. Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, Václav Havel, Boris Yeltsin, Lech Wałęsa. In fact, only Wałęsa remains. Gorbachev was 91 years old, living much longer than many expected. It really is a historic loss. But I sighed for an added reason, I've personally written so much about Gorbachev in articles and books that it's just impossible to try to sum up the man's life and legacy. Where to begin? Well, it's a daunting task, but I think I can add something worthwhile that others are getting wrong in their tributes to Gorbachev. Most of the world is focusing on Gorbachev's role in the collapse of the Soviet Union and invoke him as the hero in the Soviet disintegration. The truth, however, is not quite so tidy. In reality, Gorbachev's goal all along was to preserve the Soviet Union. Unlike Ronald Reagan, whose goal was to break up the USSR, Gorbachev tried to keep it together. So much so that he repeatedly used force in several Soviet republics, including the Baltic states, in his final years in power. At times, it got ugly. To his credit, Gorbachev did want a kinder, gentler, non-totalitarian Soviet Union, even a politically pluralistic one. In fact, in February 1990, he formally stripped the Communist Party of the Soviet Union of its sole monopoly on political power when he repudiated the infamous Article 6 of the Soviet Constitution. That was a huge positive change, and only Gorbachev had the power to enact it. But still, he strove to keep the Union together. He said so publicly until the very end. That end came providentially on December 25, 1991, Christmas Day, a celebration that the Bolsheviks had banned in the USSR and that Gorbachev brought back. That evening, Gorbachev went on Soviet television to announce that he was resigning his post. He began his December twenty-fifth resignation speech by noting that he had, quote, stood firmly for the preservation of the Union State the unity of the country. Gorbachev said, quote, events went a different way. The policy prevailed of dismembering this country and disuniting the state, with which I cannot agree, unquote. Gorbachev lamented the breakup of Soviet statehood and the loss of what he curiously called a great country, quote unquote. Gorbachev, in fact, would reiterate that position over and over in the years ahead. In an April 2006 interview with USA Today, he said, quote, the Soviet Union could have been preserved and should have been preserved, unquote. (laughs) No, Gorbachev, it should not have. As Ronald Reagan said, it was an evil empire and it was time to shut it down. Gorbachev, to his credit, helped shut it down. But the way it unraveled was not what he intended. Still, again, He deserves credit for helping to peacefully end a Cold War that few of us would have expected to end so peacefully. If you had told any of us in 1981 that by 1991, the USSR would cease to exist, we might have assumed it was annihilated in nuclear Armageddon. That nuclear Armageddon never occurred, and that was a credit to Gorbachev, Reagan, John Paul II, Thatcher, and other great leaders of the day. Great leaders, I must add emphatically, that do not exist on the world stage right now. Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Pope Francis are plainly not Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev and Pope John Paul II. We are impoverished today. We suffer badly for a lack of statesmen. As for Mikhail Gorbachev, he was a statesman. And with the help of some fellow great leaders, he changed the world for the better. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor.
0: Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs minded radio stations all across the country, including WYYC AM in York, Pennsylvania, WIJDAM in Mobile, Alabama, along with WNVYAM in Pensacola, Florida. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.